As long as I'm in my apartment, I'm okay. But when I want to go out, I get weird. Talk about weird. Talk about weird. Well, I get dizzy spells, nausea, cold sweats, hot sweats, fever, blisters, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, blurred vision, involuntary trembling, dead hands, numb lips, fingernail sensitivity, pelvic discomfort. So the real question is, what is the crisis, Bob? What is it that you are truly afraid of? What if my heart stops beating? What if I'm looking for a bathroom, I can't find it, and my bladder explodes. So then we go into 1984, and that's when Touchstone Pictures is founded. And what I find so fascinating is by the end of 1984, Ron Miller is out, and Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg are in. Like he didn't even really get to enjoy the 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 fruit of his labor to kind of plant the seed and create this new offshoot to change to put that label on these movies and that way he gets to make some of these. And I don't understand how many, you know, Touchdown does two in 84 splash and country, and they do two movies in 1985, Baby Secret of the Lost Legend, and My Science Project. And it's hard to figure out, like, I'm assuming those are probably stuff that he had developed, mm. not Katzenberg. Because I feel like the touchstone really takes off. Now, granted, Splash did finish in the top 10. It gets an Oscar nomination for its screenplay, but it really takes off in 1986 when Disney releases their very first R-rated film down and out in Beverly Hills. We get the King and Queen are coronated, if you will. The King and Queen of Touchstone, Richard Dreyfus and Bette Midler are in that movie. And I was looking through, like, one of the things I was going to ask you is going to be like, what's your favorite year of Touchstone? And eh, it's kind of it's kind of difficult. But when I was looking through what I get the rankings that I gave these movies as we watched them 1986 was like one of the best years right because even I don't even really like down at Beverly Hills that much mm. I mean I enjoyed it but it's not something I'm going to go rewatch. but I know we both loved offbeat because mm. of just how dare I say offbeat <laughs> it was how different and again this that's that that movie is like designed for touchstone pictures it's it's got that it's probably very similar to like a trench coat or a condor man but it's just a few years later and you got a comedic actor, you know, like, like judge Reinhold and you have this kind of um, love story as well. And I mean, that was a good one. And then you've obviously tough guys was fun. Ruthless people is amazing. Color of money won Oscars. I mean, that, that, that's the, that's the 1986 slate, you know, and now we're starting to see Disney's going to start being steadily in the top 10, not, not, with repeated entries, but at least they're cracking the top 10, which is more than you could say about the first 10 years or whatever of the of the box office and that what they were doing in the 70s right you've got splash cracks the top 10 ruthless people was number nine and then by 1987 three minute of babies number one so you know but 86 seems to me like the real real jumping off point for they they had changed the logo they had changed from touchstone films to touchstone pictures right and so that's when i was really not that I didn't enjoy Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Well, I mean, because I didn't enjoy it, but I do love my science project because I saw it as a kid. Also, did not know that it was a Disney movie when I saw it all the time as a kid. But 1986 is really when I I enjoyed our podcast. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, my science project probably suffered from regime change at a studio. So whatever's already greenlit doesn't get promoted because you can't have successes, you know, for the outgoing head of the, of the studio. Yeah. So. Cause I feel like, I feel like whenever you hear about down out Beverly Hills, Katzenberg's name's attached to it. Yeah. Like you, when it comes to my science project or baby, you don't really hear, no one's attached to it. Like it's, <laughs> no. I don't even know Ron Miller wanted to take credit yeah. for those. I don't think yeah. the actors are attached, but yeah. And you <laughs> mentioned 1987, Touchstone had three movies in the top 10. You mentioned Three yeah. Men and a Baby, but also Good Morning Vietnam and Stakeout. And, yeah. you know, in that regard, by 1986, after only having one film break the $50 million mark at the box office in the previous decade, Disney managed three in the same year, and all three were from Touchstone. Nice. Yeah. And I think that I'm guessing that's Ruthless People Down, not Beverly Hills and Color of Money, right? Because they were all yeah. top 12 at the box office from what I saw. Yeah. Yeah. And 1987, you mentioned three top 10 movies. Also, Outrageous Fortune was number 17. Yeah. So it's another another top 20 movie. None of the Disney productions, right? By 1986, no. Disney does Flight of the Navigator, Benji the Hunted. Like, they're not really making too many movies. The Great Mouse Detective, which I absolutely loved mm -hmm. when I watched it for this show. But yeah, they're kind of, at that point, they're really deferring to Touchstone, right? Touchstone does the two mm -hmm. movies in 85. Disney has four in 1985, nothing really of note. Return to Oz, Black Cauldron, Journey of Natty Gan, which I think Journey of Natty Gan may have started out as a touchstone movie. Because if you read a lot of articles about the about how uh, the stuff that that they had in development when Ron Miller launched the label, you'll see Natty Gan come up. So I know that that was probably something that may have originally been developed. And then maybe I wonder, that'd be an interesting little experiment mm -hmm. sometime, Chad. Have you seen the Journey of Natty Gan? I have. Okay, well, does, does it does it compare like what make what's so different about that movie than the Touchstone movies that we watched? Like why mm. they felt the need to not put it under the Touchstone banner and put it under Disney instead? Maybe because of the nature element, kind of like a White Thing or a um, mm, okay. Um, what's the Mackenzie Aston film? Oh, uh, Iron Will. Iron Will. Yeah, I'm that, that's the only connection I can get. All those Disney adventure films in the seventies, yeah. right? You know, stuff like that. That's interesting. Like, I guess it's kind, of, and then you have it's like kind of like the whole thing with the Rocketeer, right? Where the Rocketeer started as a as a Touchstone movie, and then it switched back to a Disney film as after it got going, yeah. And then Touchstone success continued even in the nineteen eighty eight and nineteen eighty nine. You know, we get you get more top ten movies. Proofing Roger Rabbit is number two at the box office. Cocktail finishes number nine. Even Beaches was fifteenth. I did see that. We finally have a Disney movie in the top 20 with Oliver and company was number 17 in 1988, but 1989 was the year that, you know, touchstone gets a best picture nomination and a top 10 movie at the box office in dead poet society. But Disney finally gets their first top 10 movie. Like you said, when was the last top 10 movie <laughs> that you can mm -hmm. think of? was it Pete's dragon? Yeah. Was that what, you know, was that, no, that was 11th, you that know, was 11th, right? Yeah. yeah like, 19, in 1989, Disney gets a number five year-end box office movie with uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And Little Mermaid, I saw Little Mermaid was number 13, yeah. and then Turner and Hooch was number 16 for, for Touchstone as well. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're now all of a sudden, Disney's climbing up. I'm curious about Touchstone, because in 1990, we also get the formation of Hollywood Pictures, where, they, is it more, is it stuff that's too adult for Touchstone? And those movies aren't necessarily designed to be successful at the box office or, or, or make a lot of money. And Touchstone has a you know, diamond in the rough with Pretty Woman, which just finishes in the top number four, right? Dick Tracy was number 10. 
and and so Disney's slowly coming out of that. Obviously, you got the Renaissance with their animated films, Little Mermaid as well. But by yeah, by 1991, you get Jeffrey Katzenberg's memo about doing the singles and doubles, and that's where it seems like Touchstone tries to divide and conquer and not do these big hits. Whereas Walt Disney is now okay. He's fine. It's taken him a few years. He's finally got them to where they're cranking out Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin movies like that. You know, as the as the box office starts to climb in the early '90s, multiplexes. That's when you and I. I mean, we were in high school, and it's funny to think about what you were talking about earlier. I was going to the movies a lot at that time. I was not seeing Disney movies. You know, not counting Pretty Woman, which I tried to see three times and got denied all three times because I wasn't old enough to see an R-rated <laughs> movie. Yeah. So you know, an interesting fact to that point two of Disney's resurgence is, you know, Michael Eisner, we've mentioned Katzenberg, but Michael Eisner too is running Disney at this time. Out of Eisner's first 33 films, you know, under his helm, 27 of them were profitable versus right. an average hit rate, it says, of only 40% for the industry was profitable. So I think the Eisner-Katzenberg teamwork, you know, they they kind of had their eye on what was what was a likely success to be successful um, at the box office. And what I found interesting is again, based on seeing all these movies and, and having the spreadsheet of what's out there, looking at, you know, trying to find the trends in what types of films are being made. You know, we talked earlier about the oversaturation of space films after the success of star Wars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess also at this point in you know, uh, home video VCRs are becoming more popular in the homes. I, I know we got our first VCR in 1986. I don't know if you know, remember when you got yours? Um, uh, maybe eight, I, I think the first thing we remember renting was Ghostbusters. So I'm guessing around 85, probably. Okay. So, you know, a lot of these movies are big on in the theater, but I'm also guessing that they probably also found success on home video. And then, you know, that kind of carries over into the next film, kind of like going back to the, uh, analogy you're making with with records where you know if if a band has a successful album it really doesn't matter what the next album is going to sound like probably it's going to sell well based on the strength of the previous album and then mm -hmm. people see it and say like oh this is terrible and they don't come back so it's you know it's a it's a curse and a blessing i guess but what i found interesting for the box office is you know as i mentioned in the early 80s it's still a lot of adult um, serious dramas um, with a mix of, you know, some light comedies, but for the most part, it's, it's still segregated films aiming for distinct audiences in yeah. the late eighties. You're still see, you're starting to see a, a, a shift in obviously your big blockbuster, your, you know, your the movies that are going to be expected to be big, like a top gun or, or a, um, you know, the sequels are coming in now with, several karate kids star trek beverly hills cop 2 and then you know in the early 90s it's kind of moving towards a either a kind of a teenage audience or um and touchstone at this time what i'm trying to say is touchstone was still making movies that you know we talk about the quadrant you split it up and you say you know over 25 under 25 male female and they're like making specific films for those quadrants. Whereas now, and you know, especially today, it's every, every movie has to appeal to every quadrant. And um, yeah. So I think, you know, part of the, 
tail end of the first decade of Touchstone, and you know, we're going to talk about how they kind of started slipping. Is I think they were trying to be too um, too specific with their films and not hitting a broad audience. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, like it, it feels like I was look, I was looking at the box office as well as, as you, and I was mm-hmm. looking for more for the trends about like how's Disney's resurgence coming mm-hmm. about and where are they placing their movies? And like you mentioned, it seems like they've got something in the top ten every year. For there was that stretch from 1986 yeah. to 1992 where they they were had top ten movies every year, including two number ones. Like I said, Three Men and a Baby was number one for Touchstone in '87, but by ni- but by 1992, the number one movie at the box office is Aladdin. And again, I, I find I find that fascinating. You were talking about the op- passing down, passing up the opportunity to see The Little Mermaid when you were, you know, fifteen. Yeah. Because I think a movie like Little Mermaid was probably the one where enough older people saw it and said, "Well, this is really good." So that by the time, and we talked about earlier, the the Disney label where people would go see a movie because it was Disney. I really think that's probably what helped people go see like Beauty and the Beast. Which mm-hmm. finished, which finished third at the year in box office, and then the following year was Aladdin, which finished number one. You know, and then of course Lion King comes a couple of years later. That's number two at the box office. You know, the, now you you're not even doing top ten at that point. You're doing top three. You know, it's a little bit more ambitious. But what I what I found so interesting is there's that there's this hole in 1993. Mm-hmm. You know, where the highest ranking Disney film, top of your head, do you have it in front of you? Do you know what the highest ranking Disney film of 1993 was? Um, I have it in front of me, I'm, but I don't, uh, I'm going to say Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings was number 15. Yeah. And I was thinking on the one hand, I was like, oh, was that the only Disney top 20 movie? Well, actually, you know, Sister Act 2 and Tombstone also were like 19 and 20. And Three Musketeers was 21. So you had some other Disney films in that, but nothing of that great nature. You know, it's Cool Runnings, it's a fine movie, you know, yeah. but to think that's the highest grossing Disney movie of that year. So that one I thought was kind of, I don't know, that was that was kind of interesting. But then, yeah, and then by the time 1994 rolls around, I wonder how much internal strife there's going on. I mean, there's books written about Eisner and Katzenberg and what happened and the fallout with them coming aboard and then leaving. And how Katzenberg almost immediately started up DreamWorks right after that. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting when we get into 1995 on our podcast to see what's different, what's sort of left over, held over from yeah. the Katzenberg era, you know. Yeah, and you know, just looking here at my sheet, I've I don't have it separated by year in our. I have a list, running list of the movies we've seen, what we how we rank them, and I just marked out the ones that didn't make the top one hundred. And in the first, you know, during the eighties, there's only four movies that didn't make the top one hundred. That's Offbeat, The Rescue, Heartbreak Hotel, and The Good Mother. By the time you get down to ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, I think there are more movies not on the top one hundred than in the top 100 oh wow yeah but but, yeah, but i mean that's, you look that's, that's the singles and doubles though right that's, yeah that's and it, taking a chance on these on these filmmakers and yeah yeah you're looking looking at this film you know other than ed wood which amazes me that it made as little as it did i just all these movies are yeah there's a specific audience that that movie was aimed towards and instead of trying to be get a bigger piece of the pie they just try to split the pie up amongst several people well, and speaking of splitting up the pie, you know, we we kind of glazed over it uh, just a minute ago, but I wanted to ask you, like, did Disney need to create Hollywood pictures? Because they already had Touchstone. Mm-hmm. You know, I, all I've ever read was that they said, oh, well, we have so many scripts in development and we want to give, we have so many junior executives and we want to give them a chance mm-hmm. to kind of prove their worth. So we'll create this other division. Yeah, now it definitely seems to 
to be more in line with um, a lot more adult adult themes. I mean, we see a little bit more sex and violence in those in the Hollywood pictures. Um, and there's something now when we get in 1995, I think we talked about it before and, and I'll we'll mention it on our next episode. But uh, there's 16 Hollywood pictures in 1995 versus only six touched on. So I'm not sure how we're going to split those up. We might watch those separately and and then just kind of gloss over them. But I'll never forget. And I think I mentioned it on the show. I met someone recently who had worked at Disney for years. He started in the early 90s. And when I asked him, told him about the podcast, and I said, we're also kind of working in the Hollywood pictures. We're not giving him the deep dive like we do with Touchstone. And he said, well, you know, our motto for Hollywood pictures was, if it's Sphinx, it stinks. And I want to put that, and I want to put that to the test. We may have to break up the 1995 Hollywood pictures into like the ones that actually do stink and maybe the ones that don't stink. Mm-hmm. But, but when it all comes around, Chad, I think you said you had a theory. Why did Disney need to create Hollywood pictures? Yeah, I don't. I know why they created Touchstone. I, I'm sitting here trying to think of why they created Hollywood. I, and I don't, unless it was just, like you said, more, even more adult oriented and just trying to take even more of the, of the pie, you know, more of the box office piece without people knowing it. Because, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, a story that I heard um, when Stephen King and in, in the early eighties, when he was just churning out books left and right the reason why they came up with the Richard Bachman pseudonym was because they couldn't, they felt if they released more than one Stephen King book a year, it would saturate the market. People Um, would stop buying them. So, you know, if you put everything out on, you know, as we said, Disney was, was kind of a dying brand until they revitalized in the late eighties. If you just kept turning out touchstone movies, would people get sick of touchstone, which, you know, I mean, it's all, I guess that's kind of interesting because with studios, you know, I mean, people looking at how many universal films or how many Paramount films are, you know, are out there. And, and now it's like, those are mainly distribution arms for smaller companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a good answer for why Hollywood was needed other than if you just had all these scripts and you wanted to make, you know, as many movies as you could to try to make as much money back. But Wow. Um, I mean, as we've seen with a lot of the Hollywood films, I I, I don't want to say if it's faints, it stinks because there have been some entertaining yeah. movies, but I think there, there is, and, and we'll have to look more into this in 1995, a, a, a very stiff distinction between touchstone and Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about where, where they oversaturating the market. It seems like at its highest peak, I think there was 11 touchstone movies in 1990. And that would have been, there's a lot of, there's a lot of years where they had 10, but 11, it's still, it's still less than one a month, I guess. But the funny thing is, as you're talking about it, you know what it reminded me of? Like they, when they created this other brand, it's like, we're going to do this adult fair. And everyone goes, wasn't that what Touchstone Pictures was for? It reminded me of when MTV launched MTV2. And they were like, it's going to be nothing but music videos. People were like, isn't that what MTV is? Yeah. But they had already had real world and all that stuff, you know, and, and, and I mean, when ESPN launched ESPN too, and then you kind of, you, you feel like, you know, n- years later, now we find ourselves going, oh, well, yeah, there's just so much content. You need to put it all out there. So maybe that's what it was. I mean, they had scripts just piling up mm-hmm. on, uh, on these executives desks and they just said, we'd love to do this. We just can't. And then they said, well, okay, well, now we have all these other people that work in marketing and we'll just, we'll flood the theaters. And then that way, I guess, you know, there's always a chance to bring in more money. Sadly, you know, the, most of the Hollywood pictures don't really make a huge amount of money. I think there's a few, I think like Hannah rocks the cradle. Well, I, I read that that was number 12 
at the, at the year in box office in 1992. But we'll see as we get on. I mean, Hollywood Pictures, spoiler, it doesn't, it barely survives into the 21st century. You know, there's only a couple of movies in 2000, 2001. And it kind of comes back a little bit later doing some co-producing with some horror movies, which I don't even know if we'll even bring those up on our show. <laughs> but I'm curious to see when we get to the very end. And maybe we can even do an episode looking back at the history of Hollywood pictures. But um, what I did want to end, actually, this has been a really fun discussion, Chad. I got to be honest with you. I hope the listeners feel the same way. Um, But there was some one project that I, for this episode, because I was looking for content and it's always fun to do, to do lists, right? That's what kept Buzzfeed going for so long. And uh, I said, Chad, I want you to make, give me a top 10 list, not the top 10 touch on movies or the top 10 Disney movies or the top 10 Hollywood movies. I want to just have you look at like the whole Walt Disney productions across all three labels. And I want you to, I want to give you give, I want you to give me your top 10 movies of what we'll just call it the Katzenberg era. You know, if you want to throw a splash or something in there, go ahead. But the 84 to 94 Katzenberg era across Disney touchstone and Hollywood. Cause I feel like, I mean, some of them are going to be obvious choices if you listen to our show, but I'm curious to see which Disney or Hollywood movies might have cracked your list. So how do you like that? Okay. Yeah. I've got the top 10. I don't think any Disney. Well, there's one in here. I can't, I don't remember if it's Disney or Hollywood, but um, majority are touchstone, but the, that's not by design. That's just looking back at the list. These are how I feel. So coming in at number 10 is the classic, the one I know you probably have ranked higher on your top 10 list. It is the Chris Elliott movie, Cabin Boy. We, we, haven't, we haven't played the crickets in a while, <laughs> so I guess we can bring... Yeah. No, no, but seriously though, Chad, what, what is your number 10 movie? <laughs> that is my that is my number ten movie. I I really enjoyed that movie, and I <laughs> I uh, yeah I I'm gonna go watch it right after this. So um, okay, yeah, and I think because it, again, I know it's not a good movie, and it's not for everybody. But for me, I just enjoy it. But moving on, number nine, kind of in that. Oh, do you want to you want to do you want to just blow through this, or do you want to do a uh, oh. Tom and Tom and Jim style, and we can alternate, or you no? Know. Who and who? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if they're listening uh, yeah yeah uh yeah okay i didn't know yeah if you got your top 10 let's 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 ping let's pong it yeah and there'll be some overlap and if there's if yeah. there's one that's on our list you can tell it where it ranks on your list as okay. well but maybe i feel like sometimes chad we joke about being being contrarian sometimes if he wants to stand out and be different or, or discover movies on his own and then he likes those better you know but i feel like there's always a space in a top 10 list for something that you feel like no one else is going to like, right? Or yeah. no, or that, that that this is your baby, and usually it ends up being number ten. And that was my number ten. I went with the Hollywood picture, passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that was another one of those ones that I I just thought, okay, this is it's going to be meh, whatever. I I remember seeing it in the theater when I was in high school, and I do not remember much about it. And that's the if there's if there's one movie, um on this list that reminds me of why I'm glad we kind of reformatted and worked the Hollywood pictures into our podcast. It was passed away. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, there's another movie on my list that's ranked higher. That's from Hollywood pictures, but this particular one is the one that made me just think, Oh my God, this, this, this I'm so glad I got to see this. I can't say enough about this movie. Good ensemble cast, funny, charming, put a smile on my face for the whole time, you know? And then I'll just jump ahead and tell you yeah. that my number nine, if we want to do like a snake draft, like fantasy okay. football, I figured you'd probably appreciate it. My number nine was Little Mermaid. Oh, uh, okay. 
you know, because yeah. I just think that you got to have a place for the best Disney. I mean, no disrespect to Aladdin. And, you know, I'm not a big Lion King person. I'm also yeah, not a big Beauty and, the, Beauty and the Beast person. Aladdin is kind of on my honorable mention. It's one of those movies that I never saw when it came out. And I saw it years later when I had to watch it for a job. And I, I walked, I had to watch it in a soundproof room. And I had to do like QC on the DVD. And I walked out of there going like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. Mm. So I'm glad I saw it. But Little Mermaid is just, yeah, I, I I I can watch it. We used to have like a yearly screenings. My wife loves the movie. One of our first dates is I took her to a screening at the Hollywood Bowl where they had people singing the songs in person. Like they had Sarah Bareilles singing. Uh, whenever Ariel had a part, they'd stop the movie. She'd come out, she'd sing a song. Rebel Wilson sang Ursula's parts. You know, it was pretty fascinating. And that's I, that's one I assume is going to make your top 10 list. So I, I thought I'd get mine out of the way because mine was only number nine. So, you know, I, I must have totally just skipped over all the Disney films because it's not on my list. It should be, but uh, I'm not going to alter my list now because that would take too much work to go back and look through the Disney film. So I guess mine is more of a touchstone Hollywood top 10 but okay. definitely i mean little mermaid would be top five for sure probably top three that's but... the only that's the only disney movie that's on my list aladdin yeah. aladdin literally was like number 11 uh you know when i when i kind of put the list together at first and then i had great mouse detective was also just on the outside looking in and also mighty ducks was kind of toward the bottom of the honorable mentions but yeah so what was what was your number nine then chad so in that regard i guess my my number 10 and number nine are movies that i know are if, if they're hits, they're cult hits, but with my sensibilities and, you know, I, I just like wacky films and this is a movie that I was not familiar with. Um, thankfully, thanks to the podcast, I got to see it. And that is my boyfriend's back. Oh, <laughs> so good. That's a good movie. That's a good, yeah. Movie. it's just, you know, it, it's another one that not what I was expecting when, you know, going into it. Um, did not expect a young Phil Hoffman and Matthew Fox in the film. And McConaughey. Uh, yeah. And McConaughey, yeah. It's just and it's just such a kind of goofy, offbeat film that again, you know, it'd be one like if we had like a, you know, gathering and you know, we'd call them Razzie parties. I don't think this would be a Razzie, but it would be a, oh. you know, just a fun throw it on and get a reaction type film. I wish more people would watch that movie around Halloween. Yeah. Like, I, I think that just kind of was, was maybe Touchstone's idea with it when they released it. And I remember, I think I told you, I watched that movie the morning that I had surgery. And I was kind of cranking it out just to watch it for our podcast and get it over with. And I I, I loved it. I loved that movie so much. It was so good. And I, I have told some of our friends since, like, I'm pretty sure it's streaming on Hoopla. And I tell them just, when Halloween rolls around, just watch it. Take a chance on it. Trust me, you'll love it. If you can appreciate the absurdist humor of yeah. it. You know, for sure. I'm glad you had that on your list. That's great. What about what was the what was number eight on your list then? Number eight, uh, totally going in an opposite direction. I have <laughs> the Whoopi Goldberg film Serafina. Oh wow, good! And I know how much you love that movie when we did that episode. Yeah. yeah, this again, it's a movie I had not seen, wasn't really familiar with it, wasn't expecting much, and really came out of you know with a whole new appreciation for Whoopi Goldberg as an actress and just the story itself. I thought, you know, it wasn't something I was familiar with. And so I felt like a little bit educated in the film, Yeah. but you know, and, and I think it's, and sadly it's an underappreciated film an underrepresented film. And I think more people should check it out. No, for sure. For sure. I, I, I loved it as well. It was, it was a pleasant surprise when we did that episode. The funny thing is my number eight movie is also about 
prejudice and I wouldn't say apartheid, but it would just be about treating people differently based on their appearance. Of course, I'm talking about treating animated characters differently because they're different. And my number eight was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh. Is, that, is that a stretch? Is that a stretch to compare uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit to Serafina? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I can see where you're going with that. And I'll just quickly say that's my number seven. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. That way, I, it, just for the, for the technical innovations alone. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing it when it came out, I think maybe on DVD or on VHS, I should say. Probably didn't realize it was a Disney movie because it was a Touchstone movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known. Um, I took a class on Robert Zemeckis uh, when I was in college and we had to watch it for that class. And that was like, when you, when you have to watch it for a film class, all of a sudden it just like, you have a new, totally newfound appreciation for it. And then having to analyze it. I think I mentioned it before. That was one of, that was, I don't want to say it was my least favorite episode of our podcast, but it was one that I dreaded because there was so much history and so much backstory. And I didn't want to bore the listeners with it because I had so much data and I'm like, how do I condense it and make it an interesting listen? So, yeah. And then you actually read the book, right? Yes. Yes. Which is not anything like the movie. So I mean, I'm, I'm still, I, I'm, I'm going to do that at some point. You actually gave me the book. It's sitting on my bookshelf over there. It's I've not had a chance to read it. Yeah. Well, you so that was your number seven. I could tell you yeah. that my number seven, I was surprised it was ranked this low. If you'd have told me after I watched it, it was only going to be number seven because I gave him the list to my wife and she loved it as well. Number seven was Ruthless People. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, that's another one of these ones that I, I, I knew it was going to be somewhat entertaining. I was expecting it to be what, why Disney started Touchstone, right? Like these adult type comedies, something for an older audience. And it was so much funnier than I, than I thought and so much funnier than I was expecting. And I like those type of, those type of movies where it's like all these different characters and it all comes together in the end. Right. Like you'd see with a lot of some of the Barry Sonnenfeld stuff. And we're going to see it with a movie, a touchdown movie that Barry Sonnenfeld did in, in the early 2000s called Big Trouble. And I'm, I'm hoping that one still stands up. I remember liking that one a lot. But uh, yeah, and you get the Queen of Touchstone, you get the Honorable Judge Reinhold. Yeah. You know, I mean, poor Helen Slater. We haven't really seen much of, of her lately, but she was and back in that, in that time, you know, so, so popular, such a crush of many a young teenage boy. But uh, yeah, my number, my number seven was Ruthless People. All right. Uh, my number seven or you six. Just said, you just said it was Roger Rabbit, right? It was yeah. Roger Rabbit. Yes. I, I'm recounting. I, I, uh, my number six film then uh, moving up would be, you know, another film that I think more people need to see. And it's based on a play that I would love to see performed live because in film, you have the advantage of being able to edit, you know, on time and, and cut scenes together. But it's uh, the movie Noises Off. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that was in my honorable mentions as well. Yeah. I think, you know, like we said on the show, it's just a superb cast that is playing to the heights of their talents. It's, you know, Christopher Reeve, not playing Superman. And, and like I said, just the witty banter. And, and I think, cause I think I watched it twice before the episode and each time there's like a new layer of discovery in the film and seeing what's going on. So again, you know, didn't do well at the box office, unfortunately, but I think uh, if you're listening to this, check it out, see if you can find it. It might be on Hoopla, not a sponsor either, but it's definitely Mm -hmm. not on the regular, not a sponsor, uh, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah. I, that's another one of the ones we have, you know, some of, some of our old friends, I'll give a shout out to Tyson. Who's who always listens. He always, he always texts me usually about three or four days after the episodes (laughs) drop to say, Oh my God, I can't believe Chad thought that, or how did you not like this? 
And I remember when Noises Off episode came out, he was just like, I need to see this, don't I? And I'm like, yes, yes, you do. And then he, he was like almost live texting me as he was watching it to tell me how much he, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. He, he, he really enjoyed that movie. And that's something that, yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. I think, if I remember correctly, you bought that for me on DVD back when we were roommates too. Yeah, I think was, that was a Christmas present. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of funny to think. I'm not going to go too in-depth with my number six because I know it's going to be higher on your list so we can save that conversation okay. for when it appears but my number six was adventures in babysitting okay um like and and another one of those ones kind of like ruthless people that if you would have told me it was only going to be number six i wouldn't have i would have said no of course are you kidding are you kidding it's from the glory year of 1987 right like like how did how did it not go that that high but i just i found five other movies since then that I was just like, oh man, these ones just, I like them just a little bit more, but yeah. Uh, well, I'm, now I'm curious to see what those movies are because uh, Adventures is my number two. Number two. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that as well. Well, then I'll just jump ahead. Then we'll, my number five, if it stinks, it stinks. I guess not. My number five was Quiz Show. Oh, mm. uh, you know, again, it's best picture nominee. I, I, I don't, I'm not picking my favorites based on their accolades, but mm. that was one that, I was really looking forward to watching it again, and it lived up to what I remembered from it. Just to to go to have a runtime that long, and yet mm. never it never bore you. Just incredible acting all around, and just a, such a compelling story because it kind of takes you back. I love movies that take you to a bygone era, and and you you kind of go behind the scenes. Yeah, movies about it's funny thing. Movies about movies don't necessarily do well at the box office, but movies about a TV show like that, that seemed to be pretty popular, you know, and I, I just, Oh man, I love that movie so much. Yes. No, I, I, it was not on my list, but uh, it is, it is a good film. And it, again, it's one of those films that you can watch and learn about, you know, history, you know, how I think it's interesting going back to look at history and see, you know, the old adage, you know, if you, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. And obviously um, Wheel of Fortune is staged. I don't know why people haven't caught on yet, but <laughs> 24 quiz show kind of, uh, you know, let us know about, about game shows being fake. Everything on television is fake. Well, yeah, you used to work in television for years, so you know yeah, about that. Yes, I what did. Was, so what was your number five? Well, oddly enough, and I know this one's probably higher on your list, so if you want to save it, but you talk about movies, about movies not doing well. My number five is Ed Wood. Yeah. That's not, that, that's higher on my list. Yeah, I'll say okay. that much. We'll we'll get to it then when we get we'll save discussion. So well, I mean, but but is there a reason that it was only down to five on your list? Uh, because there are four better movies. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we'll we'll kick it in. What was your number four? Uh, my number four. You know, sometimes you peak early in your career, and unfortunately, I think that was the case with the star of this film. It is the Polly Shore star, son-in-law. Son-in-law was my number four. <laughs> All right. <laughs> It's so good. Why is it so? Why is it so good? I mean, it you know, it is a time capsule. It is a perfect encapsulation of what was going on in 1994. But I think it also, and just in addition to Polly Shore being Polly Shore, you know, as we said when we discussed in the army now, and how when Polly Shore tried not to be Polly Shore, people are like, no, 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 we want Polly Shore. Unfortunately probably not a good thing for his career but a good thing for for us as audience but then you had a great supporting cast yeah you know uh mason adams um i'm trying to think lane, who played lane smith lane, lane smith uh carla gugino yeah carla gugino my good buddy from uh poor white trash the film i worked on 
uh, who's Patrick Rinna. Patrick Rinna. He, I just saw him. He's, he, I've been watching a lot of baseball games and mm-hmm. he, he's, he's in a commercial where he plays like the catcher uh, uh, and there's like, a, and they're with major league baseball players. And it's like, Oh, that's so funny. They're bringing him back. I think he just launched a line of uh, like sportswear or oh. t-shirts. Yeah. I follow him nice. on Instagram. So okay. check him out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think we mentioned it on that episode, but I watched a lot of MTV back then. I remember when Polly Shore came out, I saw Encino Man. I might've been opening weekend when I was in high school and I was very let down when I watched it for this show that I, it did not hold up the way I remembered it. So I kind of assumed son-in-law might be the same, but yeah, that is just, that is, I don't know if any other sh- movie that we've talked about on this podcast, and it's funny because it's a Hollywood picture, not a touchstone picture. Mm-hmm encapsulate just just takes you back to a specific point in time in your life that is 1993 when i watch that movie that is that is absolutely 1993 i was watching saved by the bell so i had you had tiffany amber Thiessen. you know i i I didn't know who carlo gugino was at the time ironically enough i found out later she'd been on saved by the bell when she was younger but uh it just there's something about it and like you said it's that it's that incredible supporting cast you get a little bit of a college feel. Now, this is a movie that came out right before I went off to college. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of give me an idea of, oh, is that what college is like? You got this wacky RA and you can just, you can hang out and have these wild parties in your dorms and stuff. And and then just, it, and then watching it again, it was one of the ones that just made me feel the most nostalgic. And it, what blew my mind the, the most out of it was when I watched that movie, I was living in a town uh, called Monrovia, California. And I found out that they filmed some of it in Monrovia, <laughs> that there was a church near where I lived and they filmed, I forget, I think it was one of the scenes when like he proposes to her, mm. uh, when when the boyfriend proposes to her, not Polly Shore, when the boyfriend proposes to her. And I tried to go there and it's been turned into like a Buddhist temple and it was like completely locked up. There was no, there was no website. There was nowhere to find out what time their session was. Cause I would totally go to one of their services if it meant I could walk around and see the, a filming location from son-in-law so yeah that's a good call that was your number that was your number four yeah uh well then i'll i'll go for my number three was the other disney movie of the katzenberg era Mm -hmm. to be nominated for best picture and it was dead poet society Mm -hmm. and i mean again i I, i'm not going on accolades i'm just going on a movie that takes me to it to to it behind the curtain to something i can't physically see i cannot transport myself to the 1950s and you talk about an ensemble cast. The cast of that movie is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't mean just the the you know Robin Williams. The all of the all of the younger actors are fantastic. Kurtwood Smith. I think I told you when we did that episode. I bumped into him in the mm-hmm. Fox commissary and told him how much I loved that movie and I had just watched it for this podcast. And the fact that it still holds up, it's still powerful thirty plus years later, and it's still enjoyable. It's it's got it's it's funny and it's charming and it's just. Ah oh, man, it's it. I rave about that one. I know you, I don't think you liked it as much as I did, but I I look back and I just think I'm. It seemed like everything hit. And when you hear about like, oh, they changed directors and they changed filming locations, and you're like, wow, and they still managed to make a movie that was that memorable, and it won the Oscar for best screenplay. Yeah, so yeah, I I was not as uh, kind to it as you were, and again, maybe it was just when I watched it you know, a few years, maybe check it out again. It might hit differently, but uh, yeah, again, I think, I don't know. I I think Robin Williams is very hit or miss. And, and, and when I watch his stuff and, and that one just felt like too much improvising Robin Williams to where it's like, okay, call, you know, rein it in a little bit, just a little too over the top for my taste for that. 
but well, I didn't think it was yeah, as bad as good, 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 good Morning Vietnam to me was more over the top Robin Williams than that was. Yeah. So. Well, we know, we know what your two number your number two is, but what was your number three? My number three, I'm sure it's high up on your list as well, is uh, speaking of a comedian that can be a little over the top, not really a comedian, but a comedic actor. I'm going with the Bill Murray movie, What About Bob? Because <laughs> I know you uh, did not like the film. I still, I saw this in the theater. I was laughing so hard. I had tears watching it again for like the umpteenth time for the podcast. Not laughing as hard, but still laughing. I I don't know. I find the antics of Bill Murray uh, a lot more amusing than uh, you did, or apparently Richard Dreyfus did as well while they were shooting. And yeah, I, um, I what about Bob? Bob is uh, Bob is your uncle in my book. So that comes in at number three. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I wonder if, is it weird that I relate with the Richard Dreyfus character instead, you know, <laughs> that might be a movie that I will revisit at some point and, and realize that maybe I was too hard on it for our show. I just, it just hit me ro- all wrong yeah. when I watched it. So, but I understand why people love it. And what, what cracks me up is it's been a couple of years since we did that episode. And I feel like there has been moments where I'll be listening to, I listen to a lot of podcasts, especially like sports podcasts, and I'll hear people reference that movie all the time they'll say baby steps or they'll say something and it's just like really like it's it's just that it's part of the public consciousness like people still love that movie to this day and i i totally get it yeah. um, well, when we uh when this podcast blows up and either the arrow or the new beverly lets us program some films maybe we'll do a what about bob dead poet society double feature and see if well, we can yeah. change each other's viewpoints on the films and you could start out by saying can you believe the same studio made both these movies <laughs> So Chad, you have the floor. Why is why is uh, Adventures in Babysitting number two? Because there's a better number one. But I just love Adventures in Babysitting. Again, yeah. going back, 1987 is you know I've said 1985 and 87 are probably like my two favorite years in cinema. Um, Adventures, it just I mean one, it's Elizabeth Shue, it's Keith Coogan who was you know awesome in this time frame, and you just had. Anthony Rapp as well. Give out a little shout out to him. And uh, I just, I just love this film. I've loved it since I was a kid watching it again. I've seen it many times over the course of, you know, of my lifetime. So unlike some other films where we'd seen them maybe when they came out and hadn't seen them for, you know, 10, 20 years, whatever adventures in babysitting is one that is a, uh, you know, it's a staple in my DVD collection, which is very limited now due to, um, getting rid of all my DVDs when streaming came along and thought that I'd be able to watch things whenever I wanted to, which <laughs> I was wrong on that one, but yeah, adventures in babysitting is just, it's just a great film. I, I don't, I can't put into words how great it is. Yeah. And the funny thing is like, okay, I had never seen splash when we started this podcast and I had seen, you know, the color of money and, and Ernest goes to camp, but there was no movie that was probably the first movie that we did on our podcast that I was so eagerly anticipating because I had seen it at the new Beverly. I think we saw it. Did, I can't remember. I always forget if you were at that screening or not. Maybe, oh, I don't think I you, wasn't. you were not. Yeah. I think our friend Matt was with us. Um, and I went to a, it was a double feature of that and toy soldiers and Keith Coogan did it, did a Q and a, and um, I, I think it was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I was like, this movie is, wonderful it's it's so good it kills me that the it's on disney plus but they've edited out the one word mm. right you know uh yeah. but yeah it definitely it's another one that takes me to a time and place 
it, it, it's a madcap adventure. I like, I like those movies. It takes place over the span of like one evening, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a lot of fun. And it broke my heart when I was finding other things that kind of chipped it down mm-hmm. a little bit on my list, you know, but I, I mean, I, I totally relate. And you know, what's so funny and I'll dovetail this into my next pick that we kind of present this image on our podcast. Like we joke about it about there's you know the, a lot of those sports debate shows like they're just contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian you know they the, i feel like some of those guys don't really believe what they're saying but they have to because that way they can take the alternate viewpoint of the other guy i'll never forget for the, the listeners might appreciate this there was one time chad told me this story that he was homesick and he had left espn on and he told me later he was like he's like every single show was the same four <laughs> topics just debated by a different host every half hour yeah, it was it was kind of annoying, and so like I feel like there's a lot of moments on our on our show, and if anybody's been listening for these sixty plus episodes, they'll know we're we can be far apart in our choices. I'll I'll throw an eight out there, and you'll throw a three, and then sometimes I'll be really harsh and give a movie a two, and you'll give it a six, and you know sometimes we do have nine together, and we'll have an eight at the same time. But what I find really fascinating as we made this list, I knew that we we're going to have a little bit of an overlap, but as I can tell, because I already know what your number one is, that we had four of the same top six. You know, Adventures in Babysitting was my number six. We both had son-in-law. Um, you said you had Edward was your number five, right? Yeah. Edward is my number one, and my number two is your number one. It's Can't Buy Me Love. You, you, you know me so well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I know I, I, I know the way, you know, I, I feel like it's so funny. Where it, I'm not really going to dwell too much on my number one because I feel like we just spent so much time talking about how amazing Ed Wood is. And it's, and I feel like that was, it was basically like a one and a one a, and I think maybe, maybe it'll only one out in my mind because of a recency bias. And I feel like it's also just because it's, to me, it's, it's a lot more quotable. I, I feel like I've been quoting Ed Wood for the long as I can remember. And I know how much my dad loves that movie. And I always bring it up when I talk to him, but can't buy me love as the, as the, runner up you know miss congeniality to to the miss america of of ed wood and so i'll also see to you to talk more about can't buy me love but yeah that movie is it's just so good and it, yeah. it's kind of, it's a combination of like it has that son-in-law aspect where it's like okay it takes me back it, it immediately transports me to that era because i may not have seen it in 87 but i saw it by the time at least 88 or 89 i must have seen yeah. it back in the day and because it was another another one of those movies that was on cable a lot, it was on HBO a lot. You know, I mean, I think yeah. he says you hit on my house in the cable version instead of the other word. But it, it, I was I was really surprised at how much it held up. It's the anti Encino Man, <laughs> where I loved Encino Man as a kid and and didn't like it as an adult. And I I enjoyed Can't Buy Me Love. I mean, I did. But then seeing it again as an adult, man, I could not stop smiling the whole time I watched it. And I have yeah. since bought the digital copy just to have it. Because yeah. sadly, I think it just turned up on, I think it just turned up on Hulu maybe? Or is it on, okay. I don't think it's on Disney Plus yet. But because I think it's got some foul language. But yeah. it, it's one of those ones I, I feel like, I have. I don't think I've rewatched any of the Touchdown movies since we started the podcast, just because I'm just, I got a new movie to, I got, a, yeah. I got another Touchdown movie I watched. I don't need to rewatch anything. I got a feeling Can't Buy Me Love will probably be the first touchdown movie that I will rewatch after this show. Yeah. Yeah. And my problem is if I sit down to, because it does, does play on TV every so often, but if I sit down and start watching it, I am not doing anything until that movie is over. Oh, sure. Just, you know, I have to complete that film, even though I've seen it many, many 
times, but it's just, like you said, it, I mean, it, great cast, you know, beyond Patrick Dempsey, you got Courtney Gaines, who, one of my favorite character actors, you got, um, Gerardo, you got Gerardo in there. I was gonna say Amanda Peterson, you know, who, when we went to a midnight screening of Camp by Me Love several years ago and they, the director was there and he mentioned that she was only 15 when they shot the film. I'm like, yeah, that blew me away because she has so much poise and maturity for, you know, someone, uh, I guess, of 50. I, I mean, I remember when I was 15 and I don't even think I have that much poise and maturity now, but it's just, it's a great cast. It's a great, I think, you know, they're, there is a great message in the film without being too, you know, in your face about it. It's just hmm. kind of there. And, um, and, and I mean, there's just three other words that I can say African anteater ritual. <laughs> you know what, what's funny is uh, we'll go back to your buddy, Patrick Rene. I always rave to my friends about the Sandlot and I say, it reminds me of my childhood. Well, the movie's set in the sixties. Well, I, my childhood was obviously not the sixties, but we did the same things. Yeah. You know, we play baseball all the time in the park and it, it, it kind of transcends. And I feel like can't buy me love. I would have seen that right around the time I was about to go to high school, whereas these people were already like finishing high school, mm -hmm. but yet I could relate to it because what I was going through the heartbreak, I'd had my heart broken in junior high. You know what I mean? I had fallout, a fallout with my friends, you know, some, some of my, my closest friends, something comes between them and then you don't talk, you don't talk to them for one year. The next grade comes around and you're like, okay, Hey, you kind of get back together or something. So I think that's one of the great, legacies of this movie is that it doesn't really matter like you could watch it now I don't, I don't know if adults will appreciate it now i mean i think it helps that we you and i saw it at such a young age yeah. you know i i can tell you my wife thought it was eh, it was okay but it, i feel like as long as you're at a certain age at least into junior high but definitely by high school probably by college you can relate to what goes on in that movie and it's it's very natural those people those characters feel real they don't feel like movie characters and I, and I, that's something I appreciate you, you referenced it a minute ago, but I will tell the listeners as well, that screening we went to, it was a midnight screening at the new art. And usually the midnight screenings, what they would do is they would, um, they would, they don't, people don't do the Q and a after the movie, they introduce the movie because they're not going to stick around that late, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, did they do the Q and a afterwards or was yeah. it before? Yeah. No, it was after they, they stayed and watched. people, people were there to watch the movie and then it. 1 30 in the morning they went up on stage and did a q a for nearly an hour and i think isn't almost all that q a on youtube i believe so yes. yes and i would tell if there's anybody who's listening to this show who likes that movie or who has not seen that movie and wants to take our recommendations <laughs> you know <laughs> uh i would say definitely watch it and then watch that q a because it is so good they give you so much backstory i use that q a to do a lot of the history research for that episode as well and it really really made me enjoy that movie even more because the stories they told were so good and you've got and there were so many cast members that were there and they it, it was it was so fun and it it kind of warmed my heart to see some like i would love to see if they ever did a, a son-in-law with a q a where you could bring those people back and tell some stories about that it was like seeing keith coogan at that adventures of babysitting one like to see these movies that we love so much that we relate to and then have the the stars tell you how much how much what a great time they had making it as well so yeah we don't have to go. We don't have to go into too much detail with Ed Wood because anybody who's listening knows how much we both enjoyed it. How much I enjoyed it. It was a very, very tough call. And it feels like Kim, I mean, love it. It's my number one, considering how much I'm raving about it. <laughs> but uh, Ed Wood, I just have a longer history with. But you can't go wrong with with any of these. You can't go wrong with with either of our top ten, our our top sixes, which had some overlap, or even our top tens. I mean, I I can't speak for Cabin Boy, but. <laughs> 
you know, go see Passed Away. Was there any other movies? It really killed me that I could not squeeze Oscar into my top 10 Ooh, list. That was a good one, yeah. Yeah, um, it's Oscar, Oscar, Camp Nowhere, and Great Mouse Detective were just, just off the cuff of my list. Yeah, I like I said, I was looking mainly at the touchstone and because I had those broken up, so I didn't go back over the Hollywood, I guess, as well, or the Disney films. But I would say, you know, maybe an honorable touchstone mention would be Dick Tracy. Just oh, because okay. I did, uh, you know, stylistically, that movie was very different from anything that has I've seen since then. And and I, th- I thought the story held up. You know, there are some issues with the storytelling, but overall, I thought it was a fine uh, a good um uh, you know good detective cop movie and yeah. Yeah. beautiful beautiful visually you know yes yeah like i feel like if we were going to try to be those contrarians and, and pick something kind of unique for like oh no one else is going to have this in our top yeah. 10 list i almost tried to work in uh run the patrick okay. dempsey movie from the hollywood pictures i really enjoyed that one it's one i wish more people would see i think it's mm. it's on youtube for free if you want to watch a, a a bootleg copy of it and then I think uh, movies like like Billy Bathgate is another one. I, I really, I like that a lot more than I thought I was going to like it. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised that if there was another movie that I thought would have cracked your sort of honorable mention mm-hmm. list would have been The Doctor, right? I thought we, mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I thought you liked The Doctor. Like, I, I, I did it. like The Doctor. Looking at my list, you know, and, and I did look at my ratings to kind of pull out, you know, which movies I ranked higher, but a movie like The Doctor even though I, I highly recommend it and I think it's a good film, I went with movies that have a rewatchability factor. Uh, okay. You know, we've said on the show many times, like I might give a show a seven or an eight because it is a good film, but it's not a film that I'm going to want to watch, you know, just, th- you know, I'm looking for a movie to watch. Oh, let's throw this on. I, the doctor's a little probably too heavy handed to, uh, or heavy subject matter to just, just throw on randomly in the afternoon. So. That's how I, that's that's how I feel about Shoot to Kill. Mm. Like that, I really really like that movie a lot, but I, I'm not going to necessarily rewatch it because it's it's kind of a tough watch in places, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want to give a shout out to Sister Act just because that was another movie that kind of prompted us to do this podcast. Um, and, and watching it again a couple of years later to, to for before in advance of the episode, we just reminded me of how how wonderful that was. And then, um, you know, we interviewed uh, Marty Kaplan as well, but Distinguished Gentleman is another one that's. It's. I think it's streaming illegally on YouTube, and I always tell people, you know, that and Run would be two. If you don't want, if you don't, want, if you just want to go to YouTube and watch some some Hollywood pictures, the Distinguished Gentleman is another one that I'm like, oh man, that movie is so good, and I saw it in the theater when I was in high school as well. So, oh wow, so that's it, chat. I mean, I we we we're gonna go off into a new era from this point on. I'm like I said, I'm I'm fascinated if we can actually pick this apart because now we won't necessarily. I mean. On our episodes, we like to do that thing where we say, does this fit Katzenberg's idea of the singles and doubles? Now, I think I'd heard that that was maybe Eisner's idea and Katzenberg kind of did it with him. And so Eisner's still going to be at the studio into 1995, but now we have Joe Roth running things. And so I wonder, like I said, will the 1995 movies still have Katzenberg's uh, stamp on it? Or do you think Roth's stamp will be on them? We'll have to just find out. I think we're it's going to be a very curious year too. I'm still not exactly sure how we're going to break down the episodes. The only thing I will tell you is that the next time you hear us after this, we will be discussing the first movie that touched on pictures released in 1995. I don't know if we're going to discuss anything else with it. Anything else from Disney or Hollywood pictures. We might save those for different episodes. There's going to be, we can probably do a little overview of what, of what Disney had looking forward to 1995 with, like I said, the new regime change and whatnot, but 
we'll just kick it off with that first movie of 1995. And what movie is that? Well, you're just going to have to tune in next time to find out. Once again, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account. It's at Out of Touchstone. Find me on Instagram at Out of Touchstone. Shoot me an email at touchstone at gmail.com. My co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. Chad. Any final thoughts? It's been it's been a decade. It took us. It feels like it took us a decade to watch all these movies, but it was. A, I thought it was a pretty fun decade to kind of look back on, and especially with now we have three different labels to kind of look at. But any final thoughts before we move on to the next era of Disney? Yeah, no, this has been fun. I, I enjoy doing this show. I you know seeing movies that I haven't seen or rediscovering films that I haven't seen in a while. But I'm just amazed that we made it through this entire episode. And we hadn't brought up its Pat. That wasn't too difficult, you know? And I, and what's so funny about the whole thing is that as horrible as that movie was, it makes me laugh uncontrollably every time I'm going through an editing episode and I see that I save that clip where Pat says, I crushed my nuts. It's just the delivery of that line that it just, it makes me smile. And so, yeah, you gave it, you, you, you threw cabin boy, you shoehorned cabin boy into this episode. So I, I could see how easily we did not talk about it's Pat or we didn't talk about firebirds, which may have almost been worse than it's Pat because it didn't have Nicholas cage saying I crushed my nuts. So, Oh, if only now, now I have a goal in life, writing Nick cage movie with that line. <laughs> this is out of touchstone and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, go to outoftouchstone.com. Be sure to follow at Out of Touchstone on Instagram and Twitter. And also, please like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you. Good night. Oh, I crushed my nuts!